the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, today accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hi, everybody. And my son, Michael. Hello, everyone. All right, if this is the first time you've turned into the show, welcome aboard. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally. We don't like paying taxes we don't have to pay. And we don't like the IRS. And, you know, as far as elder law is concerned, we want to try to save assets from nursing home bills. We want to save your house for your family, not give it to a nursing home. Now, the second part of the show, we talk about, you know, politics, history, nostalgia. But we're going to be talking about uh, William Friedkin died not too long ago. And, of course, one of his top his two top films from the early 70s were The French Connection had our buddy Tony Lobianco in it, and The Exorcist. And we're going to be talking about The Exorcist, the anniversary, William Friedkin, and William Peter Blady, who was the author of the book, The Exorcist, and the screenplay, and did a number of films after on his own, and was a screenwriter before uh, he he got into The Exorcist and so forth, including uh, Blake Gunn, Blake, Blake Edwards movie, the Pink Panther, in the Pink Panther series. But let's get to one of the questions. Beth, what do you got? Well, this is one that um, a lot of people bring up in different ways. But anyway, um, my aunt died without a will. She owns a home in Maspeth. I was told it goes to the state. Is that true? No, assuming it is your aunt. I mean, sometimes people use aunt um, in a term like, in other words, if she's the wife of your uncle, that would make a big difference than if she was your blood aunt. Basically, assets go to the state if you have no will 
and if the assets in your name alone when you die go to your next of kin by law, if you do not have descendants of your grandparents alive, basically you do not have relatives according to New York State except your spouse. So in other words, for New York State to inherit, there have to be no relatives, descendants of your grandparents which could go as far as first cousins, first cousins once removed. So, yes, if you have no first cousins, no first cousins once removed, no brothers or sisters, no nephews and nieces, obviously no children, grandchildren, no spouse, then in that case, your assets could pass to the state of New York. And, of course, that's one reason we always do a will, because you may be in a situation where you you know, you do have some relatives, but maybe they're going to pass away before you when you're the last man standing, so to speak. So you want to do a will in case that happens. Now, I'm, I'm assuming your aunt had no children. She wasn't married. There are no grandchildren. Otherwise, the house would go to those people, spouse, son, daughter, grandchild. Now, assuming she had none of those, and then if he's your aunt, I assume she had a brother or sister, which is your parent. So then you would be in line to inherit if there were no other brothers or sisters alive, and then the nephews and nieces would inherit in equal shares. So, and, and the reason I say, and because people misunderstand this all the time, if your aunt was your uncle's wife, she is not your relative, and you would not inherit from her, of course, unless she did a will. And that's where some people get confused all the time. They say, well, I have nephews and nieces. Your spouse's nephews and nieces are not your nephews and nieces. To, to be a relative in New York State, you have to be descendant of a common grandparent. You're going to say something, Beth? Yeah, that's it's by blood, and that's that persterpes term. A lot of people also ask us what that means, you know, when you're doing a will or something, persterpes. Yeah, now an adopted child is the same as a, you know, a full-blooded child. And also, by the way, you know, an aunt and her uncle— uh, of a half-brother, half-sister, would still be, you know, an aunt or uncle. So if your aunt was the half-brother of your, uh, half-sister of your father, uh, you would still inherit. Now, of course, it depends, you know, uh, you'd have to get the full family tree of, of all the brothers or sisters who's alive, who's deceased. Uh, but the shares would basically go to the, survi uh, the surviving brothers and sisters. If one of the brothers and sisters passed away their share would then be subdivided to the nephews and nieces that are alive. So it, it's not always easy to figure out who your next of kin is, especially if they're second marriages and children from different marriages and whatever. But to be a descendant, to be a lawful relative in New York State, you have to be descendant of at least one common grandparent. That's the key. And then go from there. If you don't have a if your grandparent, you don't have a single common ancestor who's a grandparent then you're not related. In other words, second cousins are not related. Now, a lot of people get confused of what's a second cousin and what's a first cousin once removed. Uh, a first cousin once removed is the child of a first cousin of yours. So in other words, they're obviously descendants of your grandparents. So if your mother or father had a brother or sister and they had a child, and that child died, a first cousin once removed, which would be the child of the cousin, would be an heir of law of your estate. Now, remember, this is assuming you have no will, and this is assuming you have no children, grandchildren, so forth and so on. 
Um, so there are a lot of assumptions, and we kept repeating it. We'd be going on this question for, you know, an hour. But a second cousin is somebody who's descended from somebody who was a cousin of your father or mother. So that would be a second cousin, the child who's a someone who's a child of a cousin of your parents, and that's a second cousin. A first cousin once removed is somebody who is the child of your first cousin, or in this case, your aunt. So that's where it gets a little confusing. In any event, one thing, everybody should have a will because a lot of these problems are resolved if you have a will because then the house would go to the person's named in the will, especially if the choice is between New York State and, you know, uh, somebody in a will. It's, it's, you know, with almost certainty it's going to go through the will if you don't have, if they're relatives, they're no relatives or whatever. Um. Her aunt has the house in Maspeth. She can she go in the house right now to try to see what if there's a will. Maybe they don't know if there's a will. Do, you know, is she able to go in that house and look around? Well, it, it, technically, if there's no will, she owns part of the house. And again, I'm assuming by family tree she is related. Um, so she can go in the house now. If the person died in the apart in the house and the police put a seal on it, then you're going to need a court order to get into the house. And, you know, and that's one thing, too. If you have a will, sometimes it's a lot easier to get that court order than if you're just a nephew or niece floating around. Because, and, you know, you will get the house, but again, you have to go through court. There has to be, you know, you have to prove you're a nephew or niece. There are no other relatives, either through affidavits or otherwise. Sometimes there might be a hearing if there's some confusion as to the family tree who's relatives, who's not, whether there's an adopted person out there or not, because, you know, not always is it crystal clear on who was adopted. Sometimes it's very clear, obviously, but sometimes it's not that clear, especially if the adoption took place in another country. It either did take place in another country or didn't take place in another country. Some countries, the records are not crystal clear, and sometimes it could be a hearing. Was this person adopted in South America or whatever country, or was they just godparents in the church and then started raising the child. So, but it's always easier if you have a will. It's never harder to have a will. And of course, if you don't have a will, even if you prove that you're the next of kin, you have to get a court order to sell the house. Now, if the family tree is very clear, after two years, most title companies would allow you to close without going to court. But two years Welcome is a long back. time to wait. And everybody should have a will. I can't stress that enough. Now, if your aunt wanted to care enough to avoid probate, then she would have put her house in a trust. And that's pretty much what we do here at Connors and Sullivan. We try to get that house to the right heirs without going to court, not paying taxes, not going through probate, not having unknown heirs start putting claims against the estate. And that's one thing, too. You know, like if there's a relative and, you know, a, a relative that's born, you know, outside of a marriage, they can put a claim in against the estate. And in some cases, you know, Ancestry.com is almost an enemy because somebody can get on Ancestry.com, say, hey, I'm related, and then put a claim in against the estate. And, and maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But that's not that easy always to solve. So do a will, get 
in your mind what you want to do. If people ask me, can I do this in a will or trust? Can I do that in a will and trust? The answer is almost always yes. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Thanks for joining us. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. The Gill for Exceptional Children, or GEC, has been providing excellent care to children and adults with developmental disabilities since 1958. It is our mission to help build better lives and brighter futures for the people in our care. We serve nearly 1,000 individuals each day and are proud that 90 cents of every dollar is used for actual services. Please visit www.gecbklyn.org or call 718-833-6633 to learn more. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, a, a little while ago, we were saddened to hear of the death of William Friedkin, who was probably one of the, the, the best directors, you know, of, of late 20th century going into the next century. And we reached out to Nat Sokoloff, who wrote a book about one of William Friedkin's greatest films, The Exorcist. Welcome to Connor's Corner. Thanks. It's a pleasure being here. Okay, so why did you decide to write this book? Why do you write a book about one movie? Well, The Exorcist has kind of possessed me, if you'll pardon the obvious pun, (laughs) for about 50 years because I was a junior publicist working for the theater chain in Boston that was showing the film. And you can imagine The Exorcist in Boston with its religious background. And in fact, my bosses and I were busted by the Commonwealth for obscenity, uh, 
and, and corrupting the morals of a minor because there was a crazy religious nut who had brought her daughter to see the film and she held us responsible where she should have been taken away for trial endangerment but we uh, we were indicted by the commonwealth and uh, while we were waiting for the court case to be thrown out, William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist, and you have to understand, this was the hottest film in the country at that point, called up our office, and my uh, receptionist said, Nat Segaloff, Nat, William Friedkin is on the phone for you. Of course, my bosses were jealous instantly, but I spoke to Billy, who was calling to give us emotional support and, and tell us that things were going to be okay and to fight for the First Amendment. And that's how I met William Friedkin back in 1973, early 74, and we stayed friends for 50 years. So the film was kind of dangling in my mind, and when I wrote his biography in 1990, a book called Hurricane Billy, which was originally published as a remainder, uh, I, we, just, we just stayed in touch over the years. And when it came the opportunity to write about the 50th anniversary of The Exorcist, my agent, Lee Sobel, was able to make a deal literally within days with Citadel Press, and here we are. Okay, well, you know, some of us obviously are too young to remember, you know, when The Exorcist came out. I remember very clearly because I was in the military back then, and I happened to see The Exorcist, and probably in a great place to see it, in Ireland. Because um, that's where we could watch it in English, and we, we were on tour then. So, you know, and then I saw it in Germany, too, of course, different reaction. But it, it, it was a memorable film. Well, sure, it scared the hell into people all over the world, depending on what sort of religion they had been indoctrinated with when they went into the theater. People who were raised to believe in the devil, especially a personified devil, were affected much more profoundly than those who, for example, like Max von Sydow in Sweden, who said, well, we thought the devil was a fool, so we weren't too much affected by it. Huh. Now, of course, the, the author was William Peter Blatty. And how, how did they get together? There's two different personalities, I assume. Very, very different personalities, but they both are very warm when they, when they want to be, and they're extremely perceptive about other people, and I think they're both very decent men, or gosh, now they're both gone. Um, yeah. In 1965 or 66, William Friedkin was the flavor of the month, having come out to Los Angeles after having scored some prizes at documentary film festivals, and he'd made a few films. He was being romanced by Blake Edwards, who was the creator of The Pink Panther, to direct a film version of the television series Peter Gunn. Friedkin was sent the script, and he came in to see Blake Edwards, and Edwards said, what do you think of the script? And Friedkin said, I think it's a piece of trash, it's crap. Well, needless to say, he wasn't going to direct the film, but Blake Edwards said, well, perhaps you'd like to tell that to the writer. He's sitting right outside. And Blake Edwards calls in the writer, who is William Peter Blatty. Edwards says, okay, Billy, tell the writer exactly what you told me about his script. And Friedkin said, I think it's crap. And Blatty starts to laugh and said, you know, I agree with you, and you're the only person here who's had the guts to tell me that. So needless to say, Friedkin didn't direct the film. Blake Edwards did. The film died. But Blatty and Friedkin became friends, and so years later, when Blatty was gonna, was unable to work anymore because they weren't making his kind of comedies, and yes, he was a comedy writer, he wrote The Exorcist and sent the manuscript to William Friedkin, who was on tour promoting The French Connection. Billy started reading it, canceled his dinner appointment, and kept on reading it in his hotel room and said, I want to make this film. And that's how they got back together. Because of Friedkin's integrity, Blatty trusted him to do a good job on The Exorcist. And I think both men were borne out pretty well. Yeah. Now, what, what was William Friedkin's background that led him to be interested in the project? Friedkin had started off in Chicago basically as a street kid. 
He said he was raised in a slum, which wasn't the case. I visited the neighborhood, but he was a he liked to embroider things, shall we say. And he began hanging around with the literati, like Studs Terkel and Nelson Algren and, and uh, folks like that. Um, uh, Elmer Gertz, who formed uh, the, the Clarence Darrow Society. Now, how this, th- th- this Pisher got involved with these guys, I don't know, but he was so quicksilver bright, I'm sure that he, he kept along with them very well. He got involved in making television documentaries in various local television stations, one of which was called The People vs. Paul Crump, which was about a man who was convicted of felony murder and was on death row. And the film had the amazing ability to get the governor to put a stay on the execution, and Paul Crump was spared the electric chair. But that's how Billy got his start, was in documentaries. And so when he made The Exorcist, it was a simple transition to make The Exorcist like a documentary, make it look as real as possible, which he did using mechanical effects and other such things. So Friedkin just had his finger on a kind of a cinema verite. He had the ability to persuade people, either in person or on the screen, that what they were watching was really happening in front of them. A lot of directors do that, but I think Billy had a, a better grasp on it than most. Now, William Peter Blady, he has a, a different approach, I'd say. Uh, did, did William Friedkin really believe in the devil? Well, that's something he tried to discuss in his last documentary, which is called The... Uh, the, the Devil and Father Immort. Father Immort was the Vatican's exorcist, which right away makes you wonder what's going on. It was the last documentary he made a couple of years ago, and he actually got to witness an exorcism, or what they said was an exorcism, where this woman was freed of demons, supposedly, although if you look at the film, it didn't work. She's still possessed. And he attended simply as an observer holding his own video camera. And so by the end of it, he says, I really don't know what I've just seen. But it's possible, but it's also possibly not possible. And that's how he wraps it up. Well, this is something that Mark Kermode, who's probably the world's leading exorcist scholar, certainly his leading fan, and written about it, and I discuss in The Exorcist Legacy, which is that the first film, uh, The Exorcist itself, back in 1973, was about faith, and the last film was about doubt. So I don't know if Billy actually believed in it. I do know that he certainly thought it was commercial and was, in his own way, a spiritual man, although I doubt if there's any religion that can be defined as to what his was. Now, what, what were the real facts that The Exorcist was based on the movie? In 1949, there was a possession of a boy in Cottage City, Maryland, which is about a rifle shot away from Washington, D.C., who was supposedly freed of demons by a priest. This was covered in a below-the-fold story in the Washington Post, and... Blatty was a junior at Georgetown University doing his studies in that Jesuit college and saw the article and kind of filed it away in his mind for later. And so when he couldn't write comedy scripts anymore, he decided to write a novel, which turned out to be The Exorcist. What's interesting about that possession, and a wonderful scholar, I mean a real boots-on-the-ground reporter scholar named Mark Upsasnick has written about that, and his books are available on Amazon, Mark Upsasnick managed to track down the name of the possessed child, when it happened, and who the priests were who were involved. Since then, some of the literature has come into into the public view. I'm skeptical that it was a real possession. I think it was a contrivance on the part of the church for political reasons. But Blatty saw it and believed in it, and it gave him a key. And this is the important thing. William Peter Blatty was, was Catholic, raised by Jesuits. He was a very, very devout man. At the same time, 
He wanted to do something. He wanted to, in, in a sense, proselytize. He said, if I can prove that there is a personified devil, then perhaps that will also prove that there is a God and a life everlasting. And that became his mission through three books on faith. The Exorcist, Legion, which was a sequel to The Exorcist, and The Ninth Configuration. All three of those books are his trilogy of faith. And that's what he wanted to do. And I believe, in the end, he and William Friedkin made a much more religious picture than Cecil B. DeMille ever thought about. I'd have to agree with you on that one. Now, he became a director himself in some of those films that you just talked about. Yes, he directed Exorcist Three, and he also directed The Night Configuration. What do you think? I mean, are you a film critic, but what do you think of those films and his directorial talents? I was a film critic for 20 years. We've all yeah. sinned. I think that he, he knew what he wanted, and he was able to get it. He was making very heady stories, which isn't the kind of, you know, there, there are no car chases, shall we say, uh, in the ninth configuration. Uh, so he was making intellectual films and making them funny and making them approachable. And certainly in Exorcist Three, and I will not give away more than this, there is probably the greatest on-screen shock of any film that I've ever seen. So he knew what he was doing. Uh, let me ask you something, too. Now, you mentioned, how did the actors approach it? Did they really believe in the story, or they were just taking a paycheck and showing up and trying to do their best as, as actors? Well, they were committed, of course, because they were professionals, especially Ellen Burstyn, who's a very spiritual woman. Linda Blair was, you know, really was her first major film, and she was all professional. These are all professional people. And just to go back for a second, a kind of a sidebar, you know, the great screenwriter, um, William Goldman says that the most exciting day of your life is your first day on a movie set, and the most boring day of your life is your second day on a movie set. <laughs> well, if you're doing your job, you know, you're getting maybe five or six shots a day because of the technical obstacles that they had to go through to make The Exorcist. So these were very professional people, and they were doing a very professional job. And what the job of the director is, and William Friedkin has done this better than most, is to create an environment on the set whereby the actors can behave like their characters. And that's why he shot in New York. He didn't want to shoot in Burbank, California at Warner Brothers Studio because he didn't want the actors driving to work seeing palm trees in the background when they were supposed to be in the middle of winter in Washington, D.C. He wanted to confine them. I guess New York is much more exorcist-friendly than Burbank, California, and that's why he confined it to the uh, Seco Studios in New York and, of course, Washington, D.C. for the exteriors. Uh, it, it was a remarkable job of controlling everything, and it took them a long time to do. So were, were there any incidents on set that, you know, were supernatural or, you know, sometimes you read about something happening on this set or another that, you know, the devil interfered with the production? What about this set? Well, you know, they talk about the curse of the exorcist, which I think is just balderdash. Okay, so the set burned down. Okay, so, so people died. Okay, so a huge statue of Pazuzu suddenly wound up in Singapore instead of Iraq. Okay, someone lost their toe. Okay, someone... Yeah, stuff happened. But, you know, if you take 500 people for three years over the course of the pre-production, production, and post-production of a film, and them and their families and their friends, statistically something's going to happen. Terry Donnelly, who was the first AD and the production manager on The Exorcist, figures these are simply the actuarial responses to a number of people for this length of time. Ellen Burstyn believes that there actually were bad vibes on the set, and she brought 
spiritual tapes with her, and then the tape recorder was stolen, and so she has another point of view about it. But I think when you come to a film, you bring to it an awful lot of baggage, pre-beliefs or other beliefs, and you simply try to keep them with you. If you're an actor, you keep yourself in the zone. But people I've spoken to on other productions say that, you know, a, a lot of stuff happens. Uh, it, it just happens that we pay more attention to them because of the nature of The Exorcist itself. You don't hear about those things happening on the sequels or the prequels or the TV series or anything else. Now, getting back, let's say uh, Max von Sydow, what was his approach to the... What, what did he think about the film when it was finished? Well, I only spoke to him once, and that was for another movie, but he did talk about The Heretic, which we don't talk about. But Max Francita was a, a very spiritual man, but he wasn't religious. Like a Scandinavian, he was very logical, and he approached the role of Father Marin as if he would any other role, such as one he might have done for the great director Bergman. In his case, as I said earlier, the... Swedes consider the devil a fool. He's part of their folk tales. He's not this uber-spiritual being who can create evil. And so he didn't take the devil seriously, although he took Father Marin's consideration of the devil seriously. And let's face it, when Max von Sydow walks into a room, you've got to trust me on this. All of a sudden, you, you, you hide your schnapps and you become very serious because he carries the weight of everything you've ever believed with him. Now, it turns out he's a hell of a funny guy, but you don't know that. How old was he then, roughly? Well, he was in his 40s, and they aged him yeah, to because, the 70s. Yes. Yeah, because, you know, you, you, you see him in that film, and then you see him 20 years later, and he looks younger anyway. Well, that's Dick uh, Smith's brilliant makeup. You know, Dick Smith was famous for creating foam rubber appliances that would age some actors and also give them the facial mobility they needed to perform their jobs. So Dick Smith, and he had a young assistant who was working with him, in fact, staying in his house because he couldn't afford a hotel. The young assistant's name was Rick Baker, who has since, of course, become one of the greatest makeup artists of all time. And again, getting back to one of the other, uh, Jason Miller, how did he get involved? Because he wasn't really an actor before then. Jason Miller had won the Pulitzer Prize for writing the play that championship season. And William Friedkin had seen it and wanted to interview him. And Miller said, what, you want me to write The Exorcist? And Friedkin says, no, I want you to be an actor in it. He said, I'm not an actor. And Friedkin says, with his unerring accuracy, well, I thought maybe you could be an actor. Because he had the right brooding sensibilities and the right, he was a very troubled man, as it turned out anyway. And Friedkin was able to tap into that and, and use him to great regard as Father Karras. Now, who is the exorcist? Well, I think there's been some debate on that, but not... Well, I mean, Father Marin was officially the exorcist because according to church ritual, you had to get the bishop's permission to perform an exorcism, and Father Karras wasn't experienced enough to do that alone, so they called Father Marin back in from where he'd been on, on retreat. Okay, but I heard one time that uh, William Peter Blady said, really, the exorcist was the Jason Miller, Father Karras character, because he's the one who drew the devil out of the child. Well, he might have been the de facto exorcist, but he yes. wasn't called in as the exorcist. In fact, the story is really about his loss of faith. And, there were, okay, there are, there are four stories going through the exorcist, and this, I believe, is why it has such power. Yes, it's the story of a priest who's lost his faith. It's also the story of another priest, Father Marin, who comes to face to face with an old enemy, 
It's the story about the murder of a director and a detective, Lieutenant Kinderman, who tries to find out who the murderer is. But overriding all of that, it's the story of a mother doing everything possible to protect her child, including going to a witch doctor. With four different stories going through there, there's something that anybody in the audience can relate to. And I think that's what makes The Exorcist such an affecting film. Now, what are you trying to get to your readers? What are you trying to get across? What's the, the point of your book? My book talks about not only the original Exorcist, about half of the book is about all the details of making that film and the reaction afterwards, but also the prequels and sequels and various subjects related to exorcism, such as folklore and, and the Roman ritual and things that came along with them and why we believe in certain things and why we don't believe in certain things. So I was using the exorcist, if you will, as a catalyst to talk about the nature of belief, not faith, but belief. And I think I approached it by using these films that polarized people so much that some who had strong belief didn't want to see it, some who had strong belief did want to see it, and it became a cultural phenomenon that has lasted for half a century. And that's the kind of resonances I like to put into the books that I write. I like to apply them, whatever I write, to whatever society is thinking. Now, what was the reaction back then? Because, you know, it, it, it had its own world, so to speak. It's people that reacted to it, the, the, there was hysteria. Can you, can you describe that to the audience? Because some of the audience out there listening right now weren't even alive back then. The Exorcist made its own gravy. That's the best way to look at it. Huh. It opened on the day after Christmas, Boxing Day of 1973, and immediately people started being so deeply affected by it that it became its own, uh, if you will, uh, inspiration. For example, the people waiting in line to see the show would watch the faces coming out of the people who'd just seen the show, and it was like waiting in line for a big roller coaster ride. When I saw the film, or rather when I supervised the screening of the film the day before opening, which was Christmas morning, which is a whole other story, we didn't know we were supposed to throw up. We just saw the movie, and then the critics went back and wrote their reviews. But other people started getting sick at the film because it was affecting them so deeply. And as you know, to this day, there are some people who not only haven't seen the film, but refuse to see the film. Well, back in my day, because I'm a thousand years old, the movie that we attached that sort of moniker to was Night of the Living Dead. It was so scary they had to show it at midnight. That was what the story was. And by the way, John Russo, who was the co-author of The Night of the Living Dead, writes the foreword to my book, The Exorcist Legacy. But the film just took off and started going across the country in the days when a movie could play in one theater for six months, and word of mouth would carry it all around the world. But, you know, again, it was criticized. It was... It was uh you know, it was different than any other film at that time. I mean, yeah. Can you, again, can you express that to, because it's your book, can you express that to what the people listening out here who, who weren't around in 1973? Well, a lot of people have given reasons for why it might have been so affecting. I mean, Stephen King says that it came after the huge generation gap caused by the Vietnam War and as we move into Watergate. And parents were wondering why their children were doing drugs and why their children were disobeying them, why the children in particular were using profanity, all of which describes the relationship between Chris McNeil and her daughter Reagan. Uh, other writers like David Scale, who is probably one of our leading horror 
historians and writers uh, was saying that, well, it does reflect the disaffection people felt for Watergate. When systems are breaking down, systems that we trust, we go into other means of belief. And that was, in a sense, what was happening in The Exorcist, too. Stuff wasn't working anymore, and so Chris and others were reaching out to any, any port in the storm, so to speak. Uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't trying to do any overall critic assessment of society. I was just trying to write a book about some movies that seemed to have captured the public's attention for an enormous amount of time and are nothing like the movies of today because now a film has to open in 3,000 screens and show a profit by Monday morning or else it's considered a loss. The Exorcist opened in 22 screens, played for years, and was probably the most profitable film in Warner Brothers history because of something that you can't stop when it starts, something called word of mouth. People would see it repeatedly. They would not only see it themselves, they would bring friends. And it's a great great dating picture, too, because you know where the scares are and your date jumps into your arms. It was that kind of a phenomenon, in addition to whatever religious overlay people put on it. Was there any uh, subliminal messaging or visuals in this film? Technically, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Technically, subliminal, no, because subliminal is something, A, which has been outlawed in America, and B, which is a message that is sent to you which cannot be perceived but is somehow remembered. Uh, they would use a machine called a tachistoscope, which would flash something on the screen like drink Coca-Cola, which, by the way, never happened. But there were some flash frames of two frames or three frames occasionally in the film, which you could see, which were just part of the whole wallpaper of the whole thing. Flash frames of Mrs. Karras coming out of the subway, flash frames of, uh, of religious metal, and flash frames of Pazuzu and, and things such as that. But that had been happening since the French New Wave in the 1950s. So let me ask you something. In, in film history, where does The Exorcist stand, I guess, in horror films or supernatural films? Is it wh Where do you think it stands? Well, the people who made The Exorcist didn't consider it a horror film. They thought it was a film about the mystery of faith, which might be a bit disingenuous. There's only one scare in the whole movie, and that's where Chris, in the first few minutes, is up in the attic looking for rats, and a, she's holding a candle, and the candle flares. That's the only jump scare in the whole film. The rest of it is all tension. So I don't think it's a horror film in that regard. It's a tension film, or as the filmmaker said, it's a film about the mystery of faith or a, a supernatural detective story. But I think it's probably the most affecting and effective scary film of all time because it doesn't rely on slasher effects. It doesn't rely on blood effects. It relies on your belief and taking the things that you believe and visualizing them in front of you. As I've said before, when you're watching a horror movie in a theater, the Frankenstein monster or Dracula or Jason or Freddy, once you leave the theater, they're, they're still there on the screen. But with The Exorcist, when you get home, Satan might be waiting for you in your hall closet. Let me ask you, how did, how did the, the two Williams, how did they feel about the finished product and the results and the box office and so forth? When William Friedkin showed the film to William Peter Blatty, he loved it. But then Friedkin took out some of the scenes, and Blatty thought the film was flawed from that point on. The scene in particular was on the stairwell between exorcisms, where Fathers Karras and Marin are talking to each other. It exists in the original cut of the film now, just the two of them catching a breather between the Roman ritual. But in the restored version, which is called the version you never saw, they have a slight conversation, and that is what Father Karras says, why this girl? 
why is why is the demon possessing her? And Father Marin says, the target is not the girl, the target is us. Because the demon wants us to ask ourselves, how can God possibly love creatures as vile and horrible as human beings are? William Friedkin took that out because, as he said, he didn't want to make a commercial for the Catholic Church. But in fact, his putting it back in adds resonances that I think are very, very important and confirms that the demon is not after Reagan. The demon is after Karras and the people around Reagan. The other thing that they tried to restore at the very end, and we're talking spoilers here, alert, so uh, I mean, go, well, I think go get a sandwich if you're going to hear you're these. If you probably seen yeah. the film. I, I hope so. Uh, at the very end, when Chris and Reagan go back off to California, Father Dyer is staring down the exorcist stairs, and he turns and walks away as the tubular bells theme from the exorcist plays. In the extended cut, he meets Lieutenant Kinderman, who starts talking with him, as Kinderman had been talking with Carers throughout. And uh, Father Dyer is just as, as much of a wise-ass as, as Father Carers was. And so he and Kinderman started to become friends, and they walk off together. Well, Lee Jacob had died, and there was no way that they could loop his dialogue. They, they couldn't do a facsimile of his voice. So they couldn't use that scene when they went to restore the film. So they've used as much of it as they can. What's interesting about that is that two things. One, Kinderman has no idea that Reagan was possessed because that isn't his plot. He just comes in at the very end of the film to arrest her for the murder of Burke Denning as a director. So afterwards, when he meets Dyer, this is the only time that Dyer and Kinderman are together. And yet in the book Legion, Dyer and Kinderman have become close friends. So if you see the movie Exorcist 3, where Dyer and Kinderman are friends, we don't know why, because they've never met in the first film. And if we haven't completely bored your listeners with this minutiae, let's move on to something else. <laughs> Well, why, why did William Peter Blady make Exorcist Three? He wanted to keep on talking about the issues that were important to him. Remember, he'd written the book Legion, which did pretty well commercially, and he got a film deal out of it. He was able to get the rights sold to Morgan Creek Productions. He had a, direct, uh, a producer in Carter DeHaven, and they tried to get William Friedkin to direct it, but he didn't want to direct it ultimately. And so Blady said, well, I might as well direct it myself, which he did. And that's why he made the movie. He made the movie because he wanted to continue talking about transcendence and about the meaning of faith. And again, to emphasize, he had Kinderman now as the main character, and perhaps he thought he could, he could spin him off into his own series. Little did he know that Peter Falk as Columbo was going to come along using the same mannerisms that Blatty had originated with Kinderman in the first film. But Blatty swears that he had nothing to do with Columbo. And I haven't spoken to the Colombo people to see what they had to do with Blatty. But that's why he made The Exorcist 3. He wanted to continue his, his movies. And, you know, he's a filmmaker. Got, guy's got to work. Right. Well, listen, thank you for bringing, you know, this history of film to life. Uh, what other books have you written that the, the audience might be interested in? Because of COVID, quite a few. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit more prolific than I wanted to be. What happened was COVID shut down the publishers, but that didn't shut down me from writing. So now I have another book out on, on the heels of The Exorcist Legacy. It's called Breaking the Code, Otto Preminger versus Hollywood Censors. And it's about the 10-year knuckle fight between Otto Preminger and the head of the Production Code Administration, Joe Breen, over censorship in movies. First with Preminger's film, uh, the Moon is Blue, then with Man with a Golden Arm, then with Anatomy for Murder, and then with Advise and Consent. Each one of those ran into trouble with the censors. And what Preminger did in defeating the censors on every one of those was he eventually 
eliminated the strict Hollywood production code and led us into the current letter rating system that Jack Valenti devised in 1968. So I'm kind of celebrating Preminger in a way and also talking about the last days of Hollywood censorship. With that is a play that my friend Arnie Reisman and I wrote called Code Blue, which is a comedy about the fight between Breen and Preminger. So we hope someday to get that produced. And because I didn't stop typing, at the end of October, also from Citadel Press, I have coming out, Say Hello to My Little Friend, A Century of Scarface. And I talk about the 1932 Howard Hawks, Paul Muni Howard Scarface. Hawk, yeah. Yep. And the 1983 remake that Brian De Palma did with Al Pacino and Stephen Bauer. Uh, that's a really close look at all those films, as well as the political, medical, and legal aspects of the drug trade. So I don't just talk about the movies. I talk about everything that goes into them or is hoovered up by them. Okay, well, thank you very much about, you know, bringing history to life here. What's the name of your book? And I guess you can get it anywhere, Amazon, so forth. It's all over and everything and everybody. In fact, just last night I was surprised to learn that it is number one on Amazon's horror movie book list, which is something that's never happened to me. As I mentioned before, my books were usually originally published as remainders, and so this is a happy occasion for Citadel. The Exorcist Legacy, 50 Years of Fear, is available on Amazon, so is Breaking the Code, Auto Premature vs. Hollywood Censors, and you can pre-order the Scarface book. They're all written by Nat Segloff. Okay, so we're going to do that, and hopefully we're going to talk about Otto Preminger uh, next month if you have the time. I'm around. You got my number. Okay, thank you very much, Nat. Michael, thank you so much. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors & Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500 718-238-6500 or Connors & Sullivan. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. 
call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, again accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hey, everybody. And my son, Michael. Hello, everyone. And, you know, like, uh, thanks again to Nack Segalow for coming back, talking about William Peter Blady and uh, William Friedkin. And I think we're going to have him back over the next few months talking about John Milius and Otto Preminger and classic Hollywood. So thanks again for him sharing his insights into Hollywood with us. Now, again, some people say you spend more time talking about estate planning and elder law. But for those people, we are going to be doing seminars in next month in October. Michael, the dates have been firmed up now. So, Michael, where are we doing our seminars next month? All right. So next month, Monday, October 16th, we're going to be at the Greenhouse Cafe here in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, 7717 3rd Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 3 o'clock p.m. and 7 o'clock p.m. Tuesday, October 17th, we're going to be at Buckley's Restaurant and Caterers, also in Brooklyn. That's 2926 Avenue S at 11 o'clock a.m. and 3 o'clock p.m. Wednesday, October 18th, we're going to be at the Atria Hotel and Conference Center in Bayside, that's Queens, 2217 Northern Boulevard at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Thursday, October 19th, 3 o'clock p.m. and 7 p.m. at Connolly's Corner in Maspeth, 7117 Grand Avenue. And finally, Friday, October 20th, 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. at DeLuca's Trattoria in Forest Ave- on Forest Ave- 616 Forest Avenue, Staten Island, New York. All right, so if you come to the seminar, you know, we always take questions at the end of the seminars. And most people, the questions they center on is, what do I do with my house? And, and of course, life is not as simple as it used to be. It's not like the old days, you just put the deed in your son or daughter's name because too many bad things can happen. And that's what we talk about at the seminars. You don't do things simply. You don't look at the what ifs. You've got to make a plan where all the what-ifs hopefully are covered. And, and by the way, we're doing one of the seminars at Buckley's, and according to Bert Carnes, Lawrence Tierney used to hang out in Buckley's toward the end of his life there when he was visiting his cousins in Brooklyn. Lawrence so, Tierney haunts us. Right. We ran into a gentleman <laughs> the other day. He said that he worked in a construction site with Lawrence Tierney whatever it was when they were young when he was young not when Lawrence (laughs) was young but you know and it's amazing you hear the stories of different people who ran into him you know over the years because when he wasn't in Hollywood he was in New York and he was arrested in New York more than a handful of times oh we're not going to talk about that anymore he tried to get sanctuary in a church and they wouldn't even give it to him well that was in Santa Monica California Oh, sanctuary. Whatever happened to that? If I walked into a church, could I get sanctuary? No, as the priest said to the cops who asked him, can we arrest him here in church? They said, get the bum out of here. Oh, no. (laughs) The sanctuary, is that even in the law anymore? I don't know. They might. If the 
priest decides to give you sanctuary, I don't know. But I don't think it could stop, you know, a New York City police officer from going into. I don't think we recognize the the authority of the church on those type of things. So, um, I mean, maybe I, I guess we can have one of our attorneys research that. But we I need to look it up just in case I need sanctuary at some point. Yeah. You never know. It could be an IRS agent coming after me. Now, speaking about these guys and the exorcist, Beth, you saw the uh, the Pope's exorcist the other day. Right. How would you compare that to William <laughs> Peter Blady? I I can't, to be honest with you. I don't think there's it's any two comparison. It's two different animals. The the one we just saw was entertainment. All right. And then I think we have to, you know, it's fun. It was fun to watch. The exorcist was scary. And I don't think these... Uh, the one we just saw, I don't think they were meaning it to be, you know, like the exorcist, you know. A lot of people were saying, you know, the reviews, oh, well, it's not, what do you call it, not canon, not whatever. I don't think anybody in the reviews cares about canon law. What were they complaining about? I don't know. It's not as deep. It's not a deep movie. It's, it's just- not a deep movie. It's entertainment. Um, Russell Crowe has a sense of humor. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a watch and you know come back with my own opinion. All right, yeah. let's do that. Yeah. Let's do that. <laughs> All right, very good. All right. In the meanwhile, it's time to wrap up the show for this week. We'll be back next week, same time and places. Thank you for listening. To Ask the lawyer. Please don't forget to give us a call if you have any questions about estate planning at seven one eight two three eight sixty five hundred. Goodbye. Bye bye everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.